We would just like to take a moment to warn listeners that this episode will contain content that may be confronting to hear. Listener discretion is advised. This episode will contain mentions of cancer. Hi listeners, I'm Izzy, my pronouns are they and them. Welcome to the Critical Conversations for Social Work podcast. This is Joella. Before we start, we'd like to acknowledge the country that we're recording this episode on today and pay our respects to the Turrbal and Yagara peoples and their elders, past, present and emerging by committing to always remembering that this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. to the Critical Conversations for Social Work podcast. My name is Jean Carruthers and my pronouns are she, her. Firstly, I would like to acknowledge that I am coming to you on Turrbal and Yuggera land and would like to pay respects to the First Nations elders, past and present, and emerging leaders and people of this land. I recognise that this land was and always will be Aboriginal land. So today, in this episode, I will be chatting with one of our crew members, Ari. Welcome, Ari. Hi. You've already met Ari uh, in the Part A episode speaking about advocacy for victim survivors of domestic and family violence and the mental health system. So today, Ari and I will be discussing the Part A episode that speaks to creative practice with people living with cancer. So good to have you here, Ari. So how are you? I'm good. Thank you, Jean, and uh, pretty excited to do this part. (laughs) Awesome. Yes, this is one of my favourite episodes, I have to say. It was an amazing episode. Yeah, and I'm looking forward to us having the conversation and just bringing it to life a little bit in this particular episode. So can you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and how you came to be involved in this discussion? Yeah, so um, I am also a social work student and this is part of my placement. I'm usually on the the tech side, so doing the editing behind, though I was involved with the episode for, as Jean mentioned, domestic and family violence and the mental health system. And can I just add that that was something that you instigated that connection and it was somebody that you knew through your own channels and yeah. you did a lot of the organising and the coordinating for that and it was a really great process and wonderful that we were able to speak to Jules mm-hmm. uh, through you and through the advocacy that you did in that. Thank you. Yeah, I felt really privileged that like she was so eager to come and join as well. So, sure. yeah, as for this episode in particular, um, I will say I don't have any personal connections with cancer directly, but I am familiar with people who have uh, prolonged illness and the difficulties they face. I also would like to clarify to anyone who's listened to the episode that I was hosting, I did introduce myself as Ara, but everyone calls me Ari, so (laughs) there wasn't any miscommunication. That's just yeah, it uh, just wasn't quite. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I've ever called you that. <laughs> yeah. It would be very difficult for me to call you that now. Yeah. So, yeah, wonderful. So thank you, Ari. And where would you like to take it? So what stood out to you in this particular episode? It was definitely the sense of identity. Mm-hmm. Because you know, as everyone knows, when you're in that teenage to young adult specifically, you're you're trying to find who you, you are, you know, from changing friend groups to changing your appearance. It's that major part of that self-identity journey. Mm-hmm. And having something like as heavy as cancer being thrown into the mix, I can only imagine how difficult it is to not have that shifting identity become so revolved around cancer itself you know basically you you become that cancer identity not that this cancer is just unfortunately part of your journey 
Yeah, absolutely. And when Sally was talking about how that created uh, a lot of social isolation for mm. her and being a young person, like she said, that she was in her early adulthood when she was diagnosed with cancer. And so it was like such a, a privilege to listen to her talk about her journey, but also to recognise that those impacts are really prominent for someone at that time of the life. And, and she would say herself, and she did say herself, that it's not any time or any stage of your life is not a good stage or it's not a good thing to have cancer, you know. Mm. But being a young person and getting to know who you are and what your identity is and how you are going to contribute in the world would be incredibly difficult and would be an absolutely an existential crisis. Mm, absolutely. Like when it got mentioned about the physical images and as we know in our society we're very very image-based. Mm -hmm. You know, you look at someone, that's your first impression, that's, you know, you could say uh, commercial beauty-based. So yep. when that's unfortunately taken from you, that adds to that social isolation because you don't have that confidence to go out and without feeling that people are looking at you different. Yeah. So, yeah, I was very blessed to be able to listen to the raw material before editing mm -hmm. And just hearing that part of her journey and, like, my empathy just went off the radar as I'm listening to it, you know, as I mentioned uh, in some of our group chats, just, yeah, I had to walk away a couple of times because just that, the difficulty of imagining that so how isolating that would make you feel yeah. for your own confidence as well. Absolutely. And with the constructions of the way that we see society, how identity is constructed when you are living with cancer would be incredibly difficult and mm. in some ways very homogenizing so you're not sally anymore you're sally with cancer that's it you know and uh, it makes it really difficult for people in the society that we have where we know that we have constructions and assumptions about death and dying, mm -hmm. about grief and things like that, where we don't talk about it publicly. And yeah. It's hard to talk about publicly and people feel awkward mm -hmm. about having those kinds of conversations. And I really reiterate that it would be incredibly socially isolating for people who are living with cancer. Absolutely. Um, there was something that one of our other crew members had mentioned and you were talking about body image and appearance and, mm. and how we have expectations in society around that. And she was saying that when Sally and Aliona were talking about losing their hair mm. and being a woman and the effects on well-being, and she was mentioning how she's very attached to her hair, our crew member that we, were, yeah. that we were talking to. And she's very attached to her hair and couldn't imagine losing that because that's the thing that gives her a sense of confidence and self-esteem in her own mm. life. And to not be able to have the choice, I mean, it can be really liberating for someone to shave their head if that's what they wanted to do, yeah. you know. However, if that's not your choice, it could be really debilitating and, and really have a big effect on yeah. mental health and well-being. Yeah, well, it really does go to back to that um, establishing of identity because I'm pretty sure a lot of women could agree in their you know early adult life. It was the hair colour, it was the hairstyle, so that was just such a huge factor. And yet, to, as you just said, to have that choice taken from you and you know talking about like the hair, I know at the moment – the eyes are a big focus when it comes to beauty trends, you know, the okay. mascara and having all these these markers that are so attached to trends, style trends and yeah. the way that we see each other, to have that effectively taken from you. And it is really difficult to even imagine just how much of a struggle that would be. For sure. Yeah, definitely. So, yeah, so that's one of the things that they were talking about. Were there other things that stood out to you, Larry? I'd definitely say their resilience was amazing. 
Yeah. So. Yeah. And I think when we talk about resilience, I think I've spoken about this before, but we're, there's so much emphasis on resilience that often makes us feel like good <laughs> yeah. when we're not living in those struggles and those experiences mm. and and to have to be resilient all the time would be really really difficult and yeah i think there's often a pity discourse yeah that can come up and it makes people outside of that lived experience of cancer feel good to say things like, oh, that person's really resilient. And, yeah. Um, and even though that is what they're living and absolutely I don't want to minimise and take away the struggle of living with cancer every day and having to be resilient every yeah. day, I do think that there are ways that those discourses of society kind of keep people trapped absolutely like you know talking about the the pity discord like uh, when i use the word uh, resilient i was for lack of a better word for me it's also acknowledging you know it's not, it's not a bounce back it's an arduous journey it's difficult you know you'll sometimes during that process you'll stop you'll go backwards a few steps so and what I loved about the conversation is to see the connection that they had and the vibrance that came from that conversation. Absolutely. Um, Eleona has this amazing personality that she shared with us while yeah. she was on placement with us yeah. she was part of our crew. And it was so beautiful to watch her have that mm. and still be able to have shitty days absolutely you know? um and still be able to recognize that she doesn't have to hold herself in that way and and be vibrant all the time and yeah she, she can be that but like her perspective on life in relation to the ways that she brings herself and the ways that they are both living with cancer mm. uh, and doing things like becoming social workers so that they can make a difference. Yeah, and, absolutely. And back in society for the things that they've shared that they got out of this experience yeah. themselves. So, yeah, absolutely. Like one thing that stood out uh, with Sally when she said, you know, there's some days that she doesn't even want to really be part of the group activities because it's just, you know, you, you have those days. You just don't want that reminder. Yeah. You know, it's it's great. And at the same time, you need to take a break yourself from it. You need to distance yourself from it for a bit, for your own sake, for your own uh, self-care, she said. Yeah. You know, take that step back. And um, but also be fierce in her advocacy when, oh, absolutely. when she was in the zone, you know, oh, and yeah. in that space. And it was really lovely to see yeah. both of their passions come through. Yeah. And that does go back to, as we just mentioned before, the pity discourse. You know, when you give, uh, I don't know, a, a condolence, you know, I'm, I'm so sorry you're going through that or, you know, it must be so difficult for you. The slight feeling of condescension aside, when you've got that sort of pity view of someone going through cancer or any prolonged illness, it can almost blind you to seeing that strength that they've got. Yeah. It, you know, if you would come at Aliona or Sally with that, you know, the, the pity blinders on, mm-hmm. it would blind you to seeing that drive that they've both developed through their experience to enter such work and advocate for youth and cancer it's just you know i feel that's something that you just got to be careful of when you are and i i often think that people might not even realize that they're doing that there's a big difference between feeling sorry for someone and seeing them as oh you poor thing yeah to having empathy for their circumstances and their situation but still seeing them having agency yeah you know and being able to do more and do things within society that are for want of a better word productive yeah and making a difference and creating social change which Mm. is what both Eleona and Sally have been doing as part of YAG and part of the advocacy mm. they do in YAG and, and part of the ways that they support young people yeah. um, living with cancer through those advocacy programs that they're involved in. Mm. So often people not knowing how to respond 
are very careful with their words, mm. they're overly nice, which can sound really ingenuous, yeah, or just not saying anything at all to avoid discomfort because people feel really worried about saying the wrong thing, then they might just avoid it altogether. That's that, it. That's really unfortunate that that can happen because that does create that how do I have conversations with people that don't have cancer? Yeah. My cancer community, I can talk in that, but nobody else really understands. Me. Absolutely. Uh, and I think the social workers that they've worked with, from what they've said, have been a really wonderful support mm-hmm. for them to have people outside of that space to be able to talk to about their experiences. Yeah. I think it's something as emerging social workers or social workers in the field for us to be really mindful of the ways that we have an analysis around that pity discourse and Mm. ensure that we're recognising how these discourses impact on a person's agency and tend to paint a homogenising picture of people living with cancer. Yeah. And just bringing yeah. in some postmodernism around people's identities and mm. recognizing that, you know, Sally is not just someone living with cancer, she's also someone who is somebody's daughter. She's someone who's somebody's friend. She's someone who is a social work student and an emerging social work practitioner. Mm. She's also an advocate for young people. And she just happens to be also living with cancer. That's And that's the biggest thing. She's living with it. It's it's not her. So just going back to talking about like that image of how we perceive people, the first thing that comes to my mind is often we would see them as very fragile. Yeah. You know, made of porcelain. You want to be very careful with them. So you're very careful with the way you talk, careful with your actions, and that can make people more uncomfortable yeah. because it's yeah. like, well, don't treat me any different just because I have this. Yeah. Like, I'm also really interested in those ideas around when people either see themselves or other people see them as broken. Yeah. You know? Absolutely. Yeah. That's another way of raising that could be really problematic in, in the assumptions that we make about people and ourselves. Sometimes these things can be internal. Well, absolutely, because so. the amount of – self-perception that we develop from the perspective of others, like how other people look at us, we can absorb that, you know. So if you look at someone and you see them as broken and you treat them as such, they may start to develop that same mentality of themselves. So, you know, I'm everyone's treating me like I'm porcelain, so clearly I am too weak to do anything. And that can be very counterproductive to their healing process and their journey. Well, it's really limiting, isn't it? Absolutely. So that's where we do need to draw on sort of postmodernism and those understandings that there are multiple truths and multiple identities that people bring and they can be contradictory as well. Mm. So you might be at times very fragile at a particular time. Mm. However, that doesn't mean that you're not fierce as well. Oh, absolutely. And I can speak to that on I can speak to this one on first uh, hand experience with my mother having a prolonged illness. She is fiery. (laughs) She is fiery and, you know, headstrong, an amazing woman, but she still has her days where she feels fragile and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. It's just acknowledging that, yeah, so she may be, you know, up and pumping and moving mountains one day and then the next day she barely raise her head there's absolutely nothing wrong with that i think the people around you it's a part of i guess you say their responsibility as a part of your journey to learn to acknowledge and recognize and you could say as adapt with you if they're walking beside you on this journey yeah so yeah and i guess it's a learning thing for people In our Mm pre-discussion, you mentioned that you've had your own experience of that pity discourse in relation to your role as a carer. Yeah, Yeah. so for our listeners, I've been a primary carer for my mother since I was uh, 15, and unfortunately I did face that pity discourse from multiple people, especially adults. You know, you're, you're, you're so young, you know, that... Even the, the expression on their face, you, you just screamed pity. And for me, it was 
I wanted to feel my strength be more acknowledged than my unfortunate situation. So that's the only way I could really empathize with uh, people like Sally and Aliona put in this situation so young. Yeah. You know, you, you don't want to be acknowledged of being an unfortunate person in a shitty in a in a bad situation um it's all right you can say shitty <laughs> so sorry bit of a sale mouth um yeah you don't want to be acknowledged for your unfortunate situation you want that recognition that you're still here you you're, you're pushing through even the bad days you know you're using this energy to again, go into advocacy or you're using this energy to get the motivation to go and pursue what you want to pursue despite your bad situation. And I can't uh, overstate just how important it was when someone recognized that part, recognized and saw it's like, well, yeah, you're really young, but hot damn, you're you know, you're amazing for learning these skills that you've learned. Yeah. You know, you're amazing for wanting to pursue social work, yeah. you know. So that was a lot more strengthening for me because it was that recognition that, hey, I'm I'm climbing this mountain and you can see I'm climbing this mountain. You're not just looking at the mountain yeah, cool. <laughs> for a, for an like analogy. That's a really good analogy, yeah. And we had discussions with other crew members and they gave their examples in relation to the ways that they have been perceived uh, sitting in that, from that pity discourse. And mm. One of our crew members, Wesley, was speaking about being African and experiencing actions of pity where people are trying to donate money to him because of the ways that African young people are portrayed mm. in the media as needing charity, you know. Yeah. And his positionality wasn't that he needed that charity, but people just homogenised him in that particular way yeah. because of his appearance, you know. And... Um, uh, that we talk about this kind of white saviour discourse that we can have. Um, one of our other crew members, Tilly, was telling a story about a woman who was giving charity and taking a selfie with the homeless person that they were giving charity to, yeah. which is really bad taste. It know? was. And that becomes that the reinforcing of a good Samaritan kind of yeah. understanding, but in a really, really disturbing way, I guess yeah. you could say. And this person shared that on Facebook and was getting all these responses in relation to how wonderful they were. So those discourses are really reinforced mm. in, uh, within the media as well. Yeah, And we all do participate in those things to a degree. Oh, absolutely. One of our crew members also said, well, I know that I've participated in those discourses and how recognising that and realising, you know, it can be really dehumanising and be really patronising, but we're conditioned to um, do those things, especially with people who are living with um, quite significant and serious illness or disadvantage or marginalisation. And this is not to say that charity is not something that we want to give. It's it's not about going, oh, well, I won't give charity anymore because I might be seen as participating in pity discourse. Oh, no, charity has been fantastic for a lot of situations. It has done amazing, you know, be it for an individual or for a collective. So definitely not, you know, dissing charity itself. Yeah, yeah I've, as I mentioned in our um, pre-meeting, you know, I've participated as well, you know, giving money to someone on the street in who's at the time, you know, yeah, seeing a situation more unfortunate, you know, um, I've gone to a 7-Eleven, grabbed a sandwich, bottle of water, some money. So it can be very life-changing for some people. Yeah. And there's, there's nothing wrong. And it is very strongly ingrained, as you mentioned before, that, that good Samaritan. Yeah. And it got me thinking, you know, I grew up, I um, went to a Roman Catholic school, you know, we very much grew up on the tale of the good Samaritan and yes. to, uh, as much as I hate this term, to, to give to the less fortunate. Yeah. So I don't see anything wrong with that when it's not for, I guess you could say, self-gratification. 
Yeah. You know, and also putting it into perspective where you're not seeing that person as not having any agency. That's it. Or not having any capacity. We need resources to support people and that's why charities exist, you know. And there's even in the episode with Sally and Aliona, there's foundations that have supported creative practice in there and we'll talk about that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, but something that one of our crew members, Diane, was suggesting is that from her culture, that giving moral support by sitting with or being with, even without words, can be incredibly powerful and can often be better than trying to make it better. Yeah. So having charity doesn't mean having the attitude of, oh, I'm going to do something good yeah. for someone, but having charity might be simply being with people and being in the discomfort yeah and I think that's something that's really powerful in social work when we can sit in discomfort with someone and hold that space mm-hmm. so that they can be in whatever that way that they want to be yeah absolutely to try and change things or fix things but sit in that discomfort so that that person's not in that space on their own that's it and you know they can make such major changes for them like as one of our crew members had mentioned in the past sometimes when they've they know someone who's unfortunately um suicidal but they've changed that final choice because they had someone who just sat with them it can be as you said it can be just in absolute silence it can be talking about things that aren't even relevant to the situation but not feeling alone. Humans are naturally very social creatures. Yeah. <laughs> so having that sense that someone is still with you, yeah. even if they don't, you know, as social workers, we only get a, a brief window of what we see. Yeah. You know, we don't, we didn't know a person five years ago. They came to us at this period of time in their life. This is what we physically see. Yeah. Yet we can still have that presence for them. Absolutely. So, And having an understanding of the discourses that are not as helpful mm-hmm. you know, can be really valuable because when we're talking about really sensitive issues such as living with cancer, these are touchy subjects that people would want to avoid mm. being around, you know, and that's how these discourses, I mean, they're only a problem because they create that social isolation. That's it. And... Uh, people wanting to avoid that awkwardness uh, or having ignorance about their assumptions, this is something that we can work with and something that our critical analysis can mm. um, can sort of become an educational platform for change. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, just on that, I'm thinking, you know, when you're in that awkward situation, you, my, my thought was I know people that when they're in an awkward situation, they laugh. Yeah. They don't mean to. But that led me down the thought of, uh, unfortunately, uh, toxic positivity. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And it, you know, you want to be positive for this person, but there's a time and place for positivity. And sometimes they just, they just need to sit in, you know, a melancholy. Yes. But that's, yeah. that's what they need at the time. They don't need you to go, you know, stiff up a lip or chin up. Everything's going to be fine. Sun will come out tomorrow. That. Yeah, no. And At least you have this. That's it. So yeah. There's, yeah. There's lots of those. I call them ice cream therapy. <laughs> yeah. You know, in the movies, people, yeah. if you've had a, a breakup or something or if something mm. bad has happened, someone will give you ice cream and yeah. to make you feel better. Yeah. So it's not about making someone feel better necessarily but holding that space so that they can feel yeah. however they want or need to feel in that moment. You know? That's it. You know, it, it gets me thinking to an analogy. You know, when you've got a bad cut, yeah, you can put a Band-Aid on it for a little bit, but you've got to let the wound breathe to heal itself. Yeah. So you want to avoid sort of Band-Aid yep. solutions. Yeah. And, yeah. Absolutely. You're good at these analogies. <laughs> <laughs> i got a creative mind, so it's like, you know, yeah, I make these connections. Right. <laughs> and I imagine like at the time when Sally and Aliona, they were talking about how the impact of COVID meant that when they were going through treatment, having family members around wasn't possible. Yeah. So what they were talking about was some of the ways that the advocacy groups and the social workers in the hospital had created opportunities for them to connect in other ways. And so Mm -hmm. the YAG program and the 
Sony Foundations VR simulations. Yeah. Did you want to talk a bit about that? Honestly, I had heard of this, the VR headsets for uh, cancer patients and people with prolonged illness who are hospital bands. Like, I've heard of them through uh, Facebook. I just thought it was amazing. It was one of those highlights of what technology has brought to us. And so with the VI, it's, you know, you're stuck in a hospital room. You don't want to keep looking at those same four white walls. Yeah. VR has given people a chance to, even for a little bit, put themselves in another place. As, like, as Eliana brought up, for her, she was able to see her homeland, yes. you know. Yeah. So just as we mentioned in our pre-discussion, it's difficult enough when you're getting treatment in your own country, but if you've gone to another country for treatment, yeah. you know, so having technology be able to give you that moment that, you know, it's not so much like a, a dream, but to give you that moment of peace to see something else, to be, to somewhere, be else. somewhere else, <laughs> to be somewhere else. Exactly. Yeah, so right. I thought it was an amazing thing when I first saw the clip on Facebook and then to hear that, Sally and Aliona had actually gotten to experience it firsthand. Like I had a huge smile on my face when I was editing that part because, again, it's it was just something so amazing, and even I appreciated just how far technology had come, so that they could experience something like this, so they could have that dreary place. I won't say dark, but dreary. Yeah, <laughs> so, and I had my assumptions about that because I'm not a gamer. <laughs> something that I have as part of my own life and Mm. experience. And so I was like, oh, yeah, that's a really nice little idea. They can do things that sort of distract them for a while and everything. But when Aliona talked about that being an opportunity for her and her brother, which I loved that her brother was able to have that experience with her, were able to go to their home country virtually with these headsets, I was pretty blown away by that because that, to me, made it more meaningful Yeah, made it something that I would connect with and go, oh, yes, that's virtual reality that brings real life. That's it, yeah. Yeah. And, I mean, like, that's only just one factor of it. You know, I have read stories of people who, you know, they've found a program that puts them in, like, Middle Earth. So, you know, fantasy realms, but it's – and that's okay. That, too. that is yeah. totally okay. Like, honestly, I wouldn't mind just having a moment to just sit in a fantasy realm. Yeah. But, you know, the important part was it takes them out of a room that would be more detrimental to their own mental health. Yeah. You know, as you, you know, you hear of cases where it's so important for them to come out into the garden. Yeah. But sometimes they won't be able to for, you know, usually for immune system reasons. That's true. But now there's that technology that gives them a chance to be somewhere else. Yeah. And in a hospital setting, like, I would have thought it would be unusual to bring those kinds of creative and artistic and musical outlets to bolster mental health in those times when it was difficult and and especially when you're going through um, cancer treatment, you know. It's such a meaningful way to be able to do that and as a bit of a distraction, or as a bit of a way to sort of be creative in that space. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, and develop new ways of taking people out of that clinical setting for a little while. Yeah, because unfortunately hospitals aren't always known for the uh, creative flair. (laughs) It's it's very clinical. That's right. So, And just some information on YAG, because that's the advocacy program that they're doing Mm -hmm. and that um, Sally and Aliona are part of. And they talked about it a little bit, but we've got a little bit of extra information here Mm -hmm. about it. And so it was founded in 2013. So it's been going for 10 years, which Mm. is fantastic. The YAG is made up of young people who have experienced a diagnosis of cancer as a patient, sibling or partner between the ages of 15 to 25. Membership is open up to 29 years, Mm -hmm. which is something that um, doesn't always happen. The vision for that is to ensure that any young person associated with the cancer diagnosis has a voice within their journey, and their mission is 
using our shared knowledge and experience and partnering with the relevant stakeholders, we advocate for people affected by cancer to improve the journey for all people involved. And so mm. it really is about young people having this experience, but it's also about their families. It's mm. also about people being able to be involved, key stakeholders being involved to support these programs. Mm. And that advocacy that Sally and Eliana have done is really rewarding in relation to the ways that they empowered by that process potentially as well. Absolutely. And through their actions as well, like you can't overstate just how big it is when you're working with someone who has that same experience as you, because then there's that yep. connection. They actually truly understand. There's not that similar. weird. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you've had that similar experience so they can understand better the impacts than someone who's never had that experience and there's that that gap or that wall. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Absolutely. So if we're valuing lived experience work Mm. in relation to someone who has had that experience, being able to speak to their experience of that Mm -hmm. and say, these are the gaps, this is what we need in here, and for people to listen. Yeah. And that's great. That, that, that opportunity to have that space that's been there for 10 years. And Sally has said that they've had to continue to advocate for that to continue yeah. and to have funding, which is part of the human service sector, isn't it? We, yep. Yeah. So it's not just about advocating for the young people or their families, it's also advocating for that program to continue Mm -hmm. to be able to do what it needs to do and to evolve and to grow and to change as it's needed as things change yeah i mean it's amazing that it's it's been around for for 10 years especially since it's it's the smaller you know it's one thing when it's a, a larger program you know they've got the funding they've got the backing they can go on for for decades but for a smaller program the fact that it's hit that decade milestone is it's amazing and it just speaks to just how hard the people who are part of it have been working yeah. and it does give you hope so that it continues on and as you said you can you know the services can expand to yeah. a wider range of other creative ways to help people on their journey absolutely I also wanted to say that it recognises the important role that advocacy plays in social work and human services, you know. Mm. I think because of the dominance of therapeutic work or the biomedical model and especially in this particular space, yeah, advocacy can be something that sort of is minimised or dismissed or things like that. So it's been so good that the social workers in this area have really valued that role. And just to give the listeners a little bit more information about advocacy, we've got a couple of definitions here that Mm. we can talk about. So sort of more personally, advocacy is an attempt to influence the behaviour of decision makers and is a practice that workers do on a regular basis. And so, therefore, it's something that you might walk alongside someone and advocate for them with that person to people who have power. So it can be a really sort of individual thing where you might go along with someone when they have to go to Centrelink, for example, or to see a doctor because of something that a traumatic experience that's happened Mm -hmm. or to attend a hospital visit after domestic and family violence, for example, you know. Yeah. So those sorts of sitting alongside advocacy. There's also the role for us to be advocates to people in power Mm. in relation to policy change and funding and which Sally was talking about. Mm. So she has to put her big girl pants on sometimes and do those sort of roles. Yeah. And then there's the advocacy in relation to working with service users. So thinking of solutions and actions, whether they're big or small, needed for collective social change to change the conditions that generate social problems. So these ideas have come from engaging with social work, the social work texts that a lot Mm. of students use from Molly McFarlane and Ablett. So they're sort of brief definitions that have been identified in there. And it's about that opportunity 
to be able to have programs where people have a place to be and are advocated for Mm. in relation to the resources that will make their lives more comfortable and transformative for them in their own experience. Absolutely. Yeah. Is there anything else that you would like to say about that in relation to advocacy? Uh, Again, it's just another one you can't overstate just how important it is. To me, it's really two sides of the same coin. Like when you went to social work, you could go down the academic fields where you have a lot more theoretical, but advocacy really comes forward in the practical, you know, being there on the front lines, you know, being – whether it's you personally having experienced the system through your own personal experiences or walked alongside someone who's had those experiences. like Yeah, and sometimes the, the critical analysis that we bring, like if you're working in practice and you're seeing all these gaps you know, mm. and getting frustrated about these gaps and you build that analysis and, that, uh, and you use your theoretical framework mm. that comes from social work to be able to go, okay, now I need to do the action to change this. Yeah. And so advocacy might be like social action as in activism might be part of that. Yeah. But advocacy is another way to be able to create change, often internal yeah. within a system. And, know? I mean, you can't underestimate advocates who've come from personal experiences because they've found the loopholes. They know how to navigate the system as, yeah. a, as a client. So Definitely. That's right, yeah. And I, I imagine social work can be practised in a way by running events, not necessarily a traditional clinical setting mm. uh, for chats rather than to build community and rapport. So in relation to the ways that advocacy works within this space, mm. it's allowed for the charities to provide the virtual reality uh, opportunities the opportunity for people to escape for a little while, the creative practices that have happened and the ways that people living with cancer have a voice. Absolutely. Yeah, that's really powerful. There's a couple of other little things that I'd like to talk about, but there's kind of one big thing, Mm -hmm. and that was my favourite part of the episode where Aliona and Sally were talking about their passion yeah, and how their passion for social work came through their lived experience and watching the social workers that they worked with. So some of it was about being able to give back, but their passion was also about watching the ways that social workers work and they said that there was like a variety of ways and people had their own different frameworks and everything Mm. and that gave them that passion and I was curious about your passion for why you wanted to be doing social work. Yeah so I would very much like to work with uh, young carers as well and a large part is personal experience. When I became a young carer there wasn't a lot of support directly for young carers Mm -hmm. and granted carers need a lot of support because of what they they do give up to take on that role for a loved one and unfortunately young carers have some more delicate needs and at the time there just wasn't anywhere that really had them yeah so Going through all that experience, I did uh, meet social workers who they didn't really work with young carers, but they were so amazing for my situation. You know, they did take into account. Um, one of them was a social worker with Centrelink. She was amazing in helping and recognizing. You know, I'm pretty young. Yeah, you know, navigating the system that a lot of adults struggle to navigate. So, taking all that into account and. Nice. What, that would have been really rewarding for you. It was. To have that support. It was. It really was. And when I had found out about now more support systems that are available directly for young carers, I admittedly I got a bit teary because I found out about it through um, the Care Expo yep. and talking to them and just going, yes, this is where I, the direction I want to go because – I want to work in that area to give support where to basically be the support that I wish I did have when I started out. That's that's the big thing. And you know, there's some more personal reasons sort of like a because I do understand how you know isolating and how stuck in that position you would feel. Yeah. So I want to be the example of it's like it's not the be all and end all. You you can 
expand out. You know, you're not confined to that carer role your entire life. You, you can actually go out and do what you want to do. Yeah. But for the large part is, is I really want to help be that support that I wish I had. Yeah. So, and so, so it sounds like advocacy is something that would be a big part. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I know just, yeah, I don't think I can overstate just how important that is. Yeah. So that's, yeah, largely, I don't really like that spark of passion only came out in about the past four years. Yeah. It was actually thanks to a, a uni assessment I was doing yeah. <laughs> as I was writing it. You know, you usually have that sense of dread when you're typing up a, um assignment and then I'm just, yeah, it just sparked. Yeah. I'm like, this is fantastic. You know, I really want to work in this area. Yeah. So... Because before then, it's like, yeah, I was I was attracted to helping people because having been in a position of a carer, it just felt so fitting. And it's not a, a saviour complex or anything like that. I'm very partial to I'm walking alongside them. I'm handing them the bricks. I'm helping them sort of build that pathway. But, but you do it together. That's it. You do it together. And, you know, adding the, the advocacy thing, you know, I'd probably be on the side advocating for more bricks <laughs> or better tools, that sort of thing. But ultimately, it definitely felt like a field where it fit into that, yeah. where I believe in everyone has their own autonomy. But, you know, there's nothing wrong with reaching out for help and having someone walk alongside you because that can really make a difference in life not feeling so alone on your path. Sure. So that when Sally and Aliona were speaking about that, I really felt that connection as well from that lived experience, that passion from that lived experience to wanting to give back, to wanting yeah. to help improve. That's good. So, and are you part of any groups now? At the moment, no, because I've primarily focused on uni. Yes, yeah, but I'm, I'm very pleased to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, uni is uni's on the forefront. But soon I will be rejoining, particularly like uh, Carers Queensland. Mm. Yeah, just rejoining a lot of the smaller organisations and getting in contact with them. Um, there was an organisation called Little Dreamers, yeah, so they're the I ones that work. You talking about that, I was thinking about yeah. that, but I couldn't remember the name. Yeah, like Little Dreamers. Yeah, Little Dreamers. They're the ones that um, do a lot of great work with young carers, and from things like offering uh, tuition programs to helping them navigate systems like Centrelink and giving them that support, making sure they get respite, which mm. carers need the respite. And I really wish that I had taken more respite <laughs> when I was you know, in the thick of it. So, yeah, I'd very much be liking to get back in contact and rejoin all these groups that I was a part of yeah. to get back on the forefront. So, Thank you for sharing that with me. Um, yeah, I really appreciate it and I love listening to other people's stories about why they came to, to this. And mm -hmm. from my own experience, um, certainly it's been about um, making a contribution, you know. Yeah like coming into social work for me was not to become an academic <laughs> yeah. um, but as I practiced in different areas and and certainly I've had my own lived experience of trauma mm. which has kind of brought me to this space as well mm. and also have had family members who have struggled with significant mental health like my mum has um, been was diagnosed with bipolar when I was five years old so yeah that's been her journey for for a very long time and I do have one of my children who really struggles with drug addiction you know? yeah and so it's really wonderful to be able to have knowledge that I wouldn't have from becoming a social worker um, and being able to share that not just with my own family and from my own experience but to be able to contribute more broadly mm -hmm. in relation to that and also as an academic to share my knowledge and to be able to have the opportunity to support students to be able to take with them a more complex understanding mm. of the ways that we might work as social workers. Yeah. But ideally what I came to uni to do was to bring sort of more 
mind, body, spirit um, mm. and creative practices into social work and human services. And, and that's still on the agenda. Oh, yeah. <laughs> still there. And um, some of the research that I'm doing at the moment is heading in that particular direction. And so recognising that we do have kind of a, what we might call the missing middle, and that's people mm. in the mental health system who have experienced trauma, who don't fit the mould of being supported in hospital or in residential mental health facilities Mm -hmm. and don't have the equity or the organisational skills to be able to navigate these systems and get the support or or have the funding even Mm. to do those things. And so recognising that there might be other ways that we can support those people who are slipping through the cracks so that's kind of the next adventure for mm-hmm. and it continues you oh know? absolutely and it changes and it evolves and I've been so grateful for the experiences that I've been able to have as a social worker in many different fields such as domestic violence sexual assault mm-hmm. um, working in family law working in community development like I've, I've had a really broad experience of social work and I think that there's so many different ways that you can be a social worker. Absolutely. There's definitely something there for everyone who has the passion. Oh, absolutely. In this space. You yeah. Know. yeah. Yeah. And you know, as I haven't been a student, it's been fantastic because learning the th- some theoretical things yeah. that I could have, that I've been able to apply in my personal life yeah. and at the same time being able to bring forward my personal experiences and help other people either navigating a system that, yep, been there, done that. This is this is how you uh, use certain loopholes to get what you want, get what you need, <laughs> which is Absolutely. you know so so important. And navigating the power, it is, yeah, yeah. Having the, I guess, the confidence to be able to do absolutely that. Um, because the systems aren't messy intentionally. You know? No, it's very complex, and there's a lot of suffering that happens and a lot of a lot of struggle that happens within our society and the way that it is at the moment and we can say that covid has really made that even more complex absolutely and, and other social economic and political aspects of that yeah that do have implications for people yeah and it, yeah it is important to say that yeah you know the system wasn't messed up intentionally yeah. There were, you know, some good intentions, but they got lost in bureaucracy, yeah. and we all know what bureaucracy does. <laughs> so Sally and Eleona, who are living with cancer, they still have this aliveness in relation to the things that they want to do, and they still recognise that social work and doing education is meaningful within their experience as well Mm -hmm. and provides them with that potentially a sense of empowerment in relation to that. Mm -hmm. There was something that one of our crew members pointed out and it was something Sally said around academic Uh, stuff. I really like this and I want to share it because often as an academic Mm -hmm. it can be all about the grades and things like that and doing assessments and things like that and and what she said is um, that there's the assumption that you have to perform academically well to be a good social worker and that you'll get a job after graduation and grades are important but so is passion and drive Mm -hmm. and how you work in a hands-on environment how you apply what you learn your effectiveness of work in the field isn't always defined by the marks that you get in your assignments and exams and so for the students that are just struggling through and getting passes and credits, that's okay, you know. Yep. That, yeah, getting, that, um, getting a seven or getting a HD doesn't make you the best <laughs> social worker. So I won't, I won't name the lecturer, but one of the first, my first year of first semester lectures, one of the things she said was fours open doors. You don't have to get sevens, fours open doors, and I've just kept that mentality. <laughs> it's yes. like I know how to apply it. Practically, I am very confident in my skills of empathy and you know rapport building. So when it comes to the academic side, I don't strive for anything higher than a four. I'm happy if I get something higher, but it's to me, it's like all I'm really doing is gathering more knowledge that can help my practice. <laughs> and if the motivation comes from you sort of having passion about the things that you're doing, 
then the academic work can become easier because yeah. you're interested and curious about what you're doing. It doesn't have to be about the referencing. Yeah. You've got to do that. But, yeah. you know, it's not the biggest part of it. Mm. Uh, but the learning and the, the passion you, that you bring to social work is really valuable. Mm. Just a few notes before we close off mm-hmm. is that Sally talked about self-care. Mm. And I think it's really important that to really acknowledge that there was some really personal sharing for her in relation to how it's tough to sit in this space mm. and sometimes she needs to take a break yeah. from the advocacy, take a break from uh, all of everything that's going yep. on and just nurture and nurture her and, uh, and even take a break from the idea that she's living with cancer, you know. Yeah. Uh, and we often talk about compassion fatigue you know, yeah. and linking that with lived experience work. We know that when you're working with people who have had similar experiences to you, it can touch your own experience and be emotionally taxing Yeah, alongside the, the feelings that you have for that person that's also experiencing those things. Yeah. You know? So that can be really overwhelming and that can be really something that is a significant experience for people who are becoming social workers and human service yeah. workers or who are already in the field, you know. Compassion fatigue is a thing. So uh, just to that point, you know, I also want to bring out the vicarious trauma that you can experience yeah. as well. Yeah. You know, you never underestimate just how much you take on yourself emotionally yeah. and you think, you know, these are all like things you've got to be cautious of because what creeps up behind that when you don't take care of that is a burnout. And, you know, you think was a word named burnout. It's this big thing that suddenly hits you, but, it, you know, someone who's experienced like pretty severe emotional burnout, it, it doesn't hit you like that. It, it creeps up on you yeah. because. I'm so sorry to hear that's been my experience. Yeah. And, yeah. I've heard other people say yeah. similar things. It, Yeah, really, like for me, I didn't really learn what I experienced was a burnout until I was doing just a certificate in counselling mm-hmm. and, you know, sharing my experience there. And it was uh, my teacher for that one. She just went, oh, you had a burnout. And I'm like, oh, so that's what that it was. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, it is so important to be aware of compassion fatigue and vicarious trauma because – if you don't take that time to care for yourself, to, I don't know, drain the negativity from that, you know, give yourself a refresh, yeah, burnout can really creep up on you. <laughs> and and I would say the thing that we often do as social workers and human services workers is we put everybody else before us. Yep. <laughs> my motto is my cup first. That's it. You know? Yeah. And so we need to replenish ourselves so that we can share ourselves with uh, the people that we work with. And yeah. I'm not going to say that I do that all the time. <laughs> oh, no, I'm, I'm still it's learning. A work in progress. <laughs> yeah, but I'm, I'm still learning, you know. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I like the idea of we fill our cups first mm-hmm. and then we've got more that we can share. Yeah, it kind of, kind of fits with the analogy of you can't really refill someone else if your jug's empty. Yeah. <laughs> so. And just to close off, mm-hmm. there are a couple of points, and I think they might have become from Aliona, yep. but I don't don't quote me on that. I don't if it was from Sally. I would like to acknowledge Sally in that too. And so, a couple of things: there's no one way to go through cancer mm-hmm. or any other life, and every experience is so unique and different. Mm. And she also says, show grace to yourself and to others. Everyone's journey is not linear. Mm-hmm. It's not in a, in a straight line. And there are multiple alternatives and possibilities in relation to how people might show up. Yeah. And I think the thing is for us as emerging social workers and human services workers or for us who are practitioners, the importance is that we do show up. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing this time and space with me, Ari. I really appreciate it. And uh, is there anything further that you would like to share before we finish? Yeah, it's just going off what you just said. Yeah, life isn't – it's not a straight line and not everyone fits under the same umbrella. That's sort of the – 
understanding I've come into this field with. You know, every every person reacts like, yeah, sure, we can have all similar experiences, but unless you somehow manage to transport yourself into someone else's body, (laughs) there's, you know, everything's unique. Yes. And I've learned lots of different analogies today. It's really hard to get a title for this one. There's so many we could choose from. So thank you, Ari. I really appreciate it. Oh, good. I really enjoyed this. Yes. And thank you to everyone. This is our last episode for the series. Yay. Yay. Uh, And we will see you again soon. Yep. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this critical conversation. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, feel free to subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or YouTube. And if you would like to keep up with us outside of the podcast, feel free to follow our socials on Instagram and Facebook. Just search for Critical Conversations, the number four, SW, all in one word. We look forward to you joining us next week.